Thank you all. Amen. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much. Amen. Aren't you thankful for God's goodness? Oh, I am. We are finishing the essential traits of the church this morning. This is the 12th trait, mission. It will be in Romans 15, 8 through 13, and it will be our final week of that, um, save for Stuart's kind of extension next week. Stuart will be preaching next, next, preaching next week, kind of an extension off of this. Um, looking forward to that. And uh, But other than that, we are finishing this ser- series up this week. We have talked about 11 other things besides mission. We've talked about what it is to be the church, the, the things we should be doing. We should be preaching and teaching God's Word. We talked about how if you will spend time in God's Word at least four days a week, that you will see your life transformed. God's Word does not return void. We've talked about evangelism. We've talked about discipleship, prayer, giving, membership, and why we have and do all those things. We've talked about ordinances, the prescribed practices of the church, the celebrations and reminders uh, of the church. We've talked about fellowship. We talked about accountability and discipline, which was definitely the favorite one. I know I keep saying that, but definitely that was definitely our favorite one of all these. I could tell by the looks on your faces. We've talked about leadership, the two offices of leadership within the church, pastors or elders and deacons. We've talked about worship last week, that worship is giving to God the value He deserves with our lives. Everything that we do uh, is worship. Our lives should be our worship. And then this week we're talking about mission. And really, all of those things come together into this final trait. All of those other 11 things come together in this final trait. We have a mission. We have something to be doing. We have a task. Mission is defined as a specific task with a person with which a person or a group is charged. When you have a mission... You have something that has been given to you to get done. That's what it means to have a mission. You know that. We have a mission as a church. <clears throat> when you hear mission, I know often I think of, it makes me think of military. I think of military when I think of mission because you go on a mission when you're fighting battles and when you're fighting a war. You're on a mission to win the war. And often that's the term that is used when soldiers are talking about the tasks they have to do. And it made me think of this week <clears throat> as preparing for this in uh, 1983, some of you will remember this, some of you have never heard of this, when the Marine Corps barracks in Beirut were bombed in 1983, uh, killing about, about 240 Americans, about 220 of which were Marine Corps soldiers at the time. It was a, it was a big deal, it was a shock. Um, I had a video to show you, but it kept messing up, but it's really not to the point. The point is, it was bad. Uh, it was really, really bad, and... People were scared, soldiers were hurt, and even many more were injured. And I read a story about that, uh, about Corporal Jeffrey Lee Nashton. Corporal Jeffrey Lee Nashton. Corporal, Corporal Jeffrey Lee Nashton was injured during this bombing in Beirut, injured very badly. They said that um, he had so many hoses coming out of him, he looked like more machine than man. Um, and the, uh, I don't want to get this wrong, I want to get this right. The Marine Corps Commandant, Paul Kelly, was coming to visit injured soldiers in Frankfurt, Germany, in one of our uh, military hospitals over there. And he made his way to Corporal Nashton, and uh, through the hoses and through the pain and through everything else, he, he motioned for a pen and a piece of paper. 
Another, uh, remember, this is, this is a Marine. And he wrote on the piece of paper and then turned it to the commandant. It said, Semper Fi. He's laying there. He's in pain. He's got hoses coming out of him everywhere. Um, he's on the brink of death. He, ended up, he did end up surviving. And he writes Semper Fi, which is short for Semper Fidelis, which many of you know, some of you may not. That just means always faithful or forever faithful. It is the motto of the Marine Corps. It means no matter what, you do your job. Always faithful. No matter what, you're always there for your uh, other Marine. Semper Fi was what he told his commandant, laying there in the bed talking to uh, Corporal Kelly. Right after World, excuse me, right after Pearl Harbor, the Marine Corps decided to that they needed a creed, a motto um, to go along with Semper Fi, and so Major General William H. Ripertus wrote what many of you have heard probably in movies and things like that. Uh, the Marine Corps motto that they repeat, this is my rifle. You've heard that probably. This is the end of the Marine Corps motto. It says, before God, I swear this creed, my rifle and myself are the defenders of my country. We are the masters of our enemy. We are the saviors of my life. So be it until victory is America's and there is no enemy but peace. That's mission. That's understanding that you have a duty when you're given a mission. That was right after Pearl Harbor, and they, we needed a rallying cry. And I love that, so be it. We have, a, we have a Bible word, a church word for that, so be it. Some of you say it from time to time. It's amen. When you say amen, that's what you're saying. You're saying, I agree, so be it. Let it be. Amen. You could put amen right there. Well, we're looking at Paul's mission, and what Paul tells the church is the mission of the church in Romans today. He wrote this letter in the spring of AD 57. He wrote it to the home churches in Rome while he was in Corinth, about to be on his way to Jerusalem. That's when Paul wrote this letter. Uh, Paul was not the planner or the pastor of the church in Rome. He's writing a letter to them, but he has not even been there to them yet when he writes this letter. And I and my opinion is that's why he writes such a theologically deep letter. Of all the, the, the epistles in the New Testament, this one is the, the longest, the biggest, and definitely a very, very deep letter. And I think that's part of the reason why. He's never met these people. He's never talked to these people. They've, they've, been, they've started, and they have a great reputation as a church, but he's kind of making sure they understand where he's coming from, making sure uh, that they're on the same sheet of music, so to speak. They're on the same page, and he's wanting to encourage them. Uh, and he makes sure that they know what he knows and that what he knows should be what they know. And he says that in the letter that that is uh, the case. So it's quite the Holy Spirit-inspired letter when you read it, especially in its entirety, if you were ever to sit and read it through one sitting. He's just finished saying why they should be united. Remember, the big division in the church in this time is Jew and Gentile. And he's just given a chapter's worth of why Jew and Gentile have plenty of reason to be together and to be united, uh, that this division should not be the case. And then we pick up the letter right after he's really made that case and kind of continuing that point in chapter 15, verse 8. So that's where we are picking it up this morning. He says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it, is, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises 
of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. Excuse me, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's right. So what, what is Paul getting at in this section? What is he getting at? Well, the first thing he says there is that Christ became a servant of the Jews. A servant of the Jews. The servant of the Jews. The, the Messiah, in other words. The promised one. The one that, that would come to take away sin. He died for the sins of the Jews. That's why he's the servant of the Jews. Because the truth of God was given to and through the Jews, so he died for the Jews first, the Jewish people. But like First John two two tells us, it says he also died for the sins of the world. And Paul is making that point here, because God's word is true, and that's what it said would happen. That's why it's happening. That's the last part of that verse on behalf of God's truth. Why? Why that? Why? Why does Jesus come as the servant of the Jews? So that. The promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. The promises of God would be fulfilled in Jesus' life, in Jesus' actions. Uh, the promises like, for, when he talks about the patriarchs, like Abraham's seed would be the blessing of the world. Right? You could go on. The, no, the, the, the blessing of Noah, the blessing of David. The, there's, there's several blessings or, or promises to the patriarchs in the, Jewish, uh, tradition, in the Jewish Bible, in the Old Testament, what we would say. So, it says that... Christ would be the servant of this, so that, and, and he goes on, moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So he puts that in there. He says, hey, this happened through and to and because of the Jews, but it also happened, and he says, and moreover, so just as much, if not more, the reason why this happened is so the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus, Jesus unified Jew and Gentile. Paul is making that point very clear after he's already talked about unity. He's making that point again, that the entire point of God doing what he did was to unify mankind as one body, as one church underneath his Messiah. One body, one church, all mankind, all sin paid for, all together. Disunity among believers then, for any human reason, Disunity among believers in Jesus for any human reason, any reason that we make up, race, socioeconomic status, all those types of things, any disunity among believers for any human reason is obviously unacceptable to God. Paul's making that point for us here. It was always the plan. It was always the plan. Whole world redeemed, bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus. And Paul proves that it was always the plan in those next couple of verses where he uh, quotes the Old Testament. Paul's quoting the Old Testament when he says these things that he says here. He says, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. That is a quote of 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, And also that is a quote of Psalm 18. It's stated in both those places. He says, and again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. That is Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three from the Song of Moses. So Paul's going back to what has already taken place, and he's making the point. He's saying, I'm, I'm not making this up. Our scripture has always said this. We kind of overlooked it. A lot of us missed it, but that's what it says. 
that this will happen. He goes on there. He says, and again, praise the Lord. All you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. That's Psalm 117.1. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. That's Isaiah 11.10. That's a, also a messianic prophecy. It's not just saying that the, the Gentiles will praise God, but it's also a messianic prophecy, prophecy that Jesus will fulfill because Jesus is in the line of Jesse. Jesse being David's dad. And Jesus comes from that line. And then, what's the result? That's the mission. What, did you miss the mission? The mission is that God's name would be praised by the entire world. That's the mission of the church. That's the reason Jesus came. That's the whole point. Our sins saved for God's glory. Us redeemed for God's glory. We preach that. We teach that. We go all around the world and share that. For God's glory. So his name will be praised by Jew and Gentile or by the whole world, by all mankind would be the way we could say it now. Every single human being, God wants their praise for his goodness, for what he has done. And what then is the result of the mission from God for the church? What's the result? He says it there in, in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We exist to extend, to extend the praising of God's name for the gospel of Jesus for all peoples, and we, in turn, are filled with joy and peace and overflow with hope to the world, that there is a reason that we are here, that there is a reason that they are going through the things they are going, going through, that they're is a God that loves you enough to take away your sin. That, that there is a God that has a purpose and a meaning for your life. We should overflow with that hope. That there is a meaning to this crazy, crazy, seemingly random, seemingly non-ending painful life. There is a reason for it. We should overflow with that hope. And that hope is, and that reason is, that we would praise God for His goodness. And His goodness is so good that He took away what is obvious, our deficient, our deficiency, our sin, our rejection of him. He took that away himself. He paid for it. That is good news. The world wants to know that. Some will reject it, but overall, human beings want to know that, that there's a God that exists that, that will be here forever and that he loves them. And then Paul goes on and gives his personal mission. In the next verses, his personal mission, how he is going to fulfill the church's mission personally. What God has called him personally to do says that in verse 17. If you're still in your work, copy of your word, you can, you can go along with me or it's on the screen. It says, therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders... Through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Irulan. I practiced this word all week long. I still can't say it. To that word, that town. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. He says from where the word started in Jerusalem. The word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. From where it started all the way to my furthest westward city that I have gone to so far that I still can't say that word. Illyricum, I think it's how you say it. I can't get it. It's too hard. 
<laughs> he says, I've taken it all the way there. And the reason I do it, my whole purpose is to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Jesus gave me that mission, and I'm fulfilling that mission, starting in Jerusalem and then all the way out as far west as I've gone so far. He's writing this letter to the Romans while he is in Corinth, saying these things. So why the letter to Rome then? What's his point of writing this letter? You didn't just write letters to write letters. It was expensive. It was difficult. It was hard to get them there. There was a reason for it. Obviously, the underlying reason is the Holy Spirit inspired it so that we would have it to this day. But what is his human reason for doing it? He continues there in verse 23. He tells us why. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, you the, you the church in Rome, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. He asked the church in Rome to fulfill its mission as a church by assisting him in his personal mission to fulfill the overall mission of the church. He's asking them to assist him in making it all the way to Spain to share the gospel where it has not been shared, to make it known where it is not known, spreading the gospel so God's name is praised. He's asking them to join in in that. But check this out. Continuing in verse 25 there, still in Romans 15. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. It says, first, before I come to you, first, I'm going to go meet some needs in Jerusalem. There's some people with some physical needs in the church in Jerusalem. And I'm taking an offering from these Gentile churches to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Before I come to you, I'm going to go do this also. So my mission is to take the gospel where it's never been taken. But I also have this, this mission that I'm fulfilling within the church to go help meet needs of people in the church. He, fin- he continues, verse 27, They were pleased to do it, they being the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings. They owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. And these churches were happy to fulfill their duty to continue the mission of the church, to help meet the physical needs of others in the church. And as Gentiles, he says they were happy to do it because without the Jews, the truth of God, the revelation of God doesn't come to them. And so they were happy to help out financially, in other words, with the needs of the people in Jerusalem. We've said this before, but it's probably at the time when Jerusalem was experiencing a major famine all throughout Judea, and people were very, very much suffering. So, Continuing, verse 28, so after, (laughs) I love Paul, so after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution from those churches in Achaia and Macedonia, which is all over Greece, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing or the grace or the gift of Christ. He says, and then I'll be coming your way. So after I go from Corinth to Jerusalem, then I'll finally finally make my way to Rome, which has been my desire for years and years and years, Paul tells them. And here, you join. You'll join in in this mission of the church, he tells the Romans. And I'm going to hang out with you, we're going to have a good time, and then hopefully you'll support me, help me take the gospel to Spain where it has not been. So, check this out, Paul's mission. 
He's in Corinth writing this letter to Rome. Corinth to Rome to Spain is about 1,500 miles. If Paul just would have continued on his mission that he was already on, it would have taken him, it would have been a 1,500-mile trip, walking in ships, riding by animal, 1,500 miles to get from where he's writing the letter to the Romans, to Rome, and then to Spain. But he says there that that's not what he's doing, right? He says he's taking a gift, an offering, to the people that need it in the church in Jerusalem. So Corinth to Jerusalem, to Rome, to Spain, is about 3,000 miles. Now, 1,500 miles to us is a lot when we think of modern-day travel. 1,500 miles in their time, it's hard for us to even wrap our mind around what Paul is saying. So, if he had gone straight from where he was to where he desired to be, 1,500 miles. But instead, he knows there's a simultaneous mission along with his personal mission of the entire church. There's a simultaneous mission. To spread of the gospel by meeting spiritual needs of knowing Jesus and meeting physical needs to strengthen the brethren. Simultaneous. Spiritual needs and physical needs. Paul's doing both at a great hardship and expense to himself, physically, financially, and otherwise. He doubled his trip. That's knowing and fulfilling your mission. That's how a Marine says Semper Fi when he's laying there with tubes coming out of him. That's how a Christian can double his trip 1,500 miles to 3,000 miles. And we know that on his way to Rome, he shipwrecked and almost died and all these things, right? But he knows his mission. He's a soldier for Christ. He has a duty to fulfill the task that is given him. Paul knows this, and he gives us an extraordinary example of what a Christian looks like when he or she knows their mission and will do anything to complete that mission. So then the question becomes, what do we do now? So what do we do now? Because none of you and I and anyone else has Paul's specific personal mission, but we still do have the mission of the church, right? The global, the whole global church's mission is to cause God's name to be praised through the gospel of Jesus Christ by all peoples. That's what Scripture says. By all peoples will praise His name. So I ask you then, the question is, what do we do now? Let's ask some questions and see if we can find some answers. I ask you, are there still people in the world, here and everywhere else, that have not heard the gospel? Are there still people around the world who have not heard the gospel? If that's still what God wants to happen, His name to be praised by all peoples because of His love for us demonstrated through the life of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his proof over Satan, over sin, over death. That gospel, that's still what God wants to have happen. Are there still people that haven't heard? Well, you know there is, but how many? What are the numbers? You know that I like numbers. I kind of nerd out on this stuff. 6,000 out of 11,000 people groups in the world are still classified by the IMB as unreached. Unreached means is defined by the IMB as less than 2% evangelical presence. In other words, less than 2% of the people there share the gospel or know the gospel or do anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Less than 2%, that's classified as unreached. No one is sharing the gospel in 6,000 out of the 11,000 people groups in the world. You say, well, what's that? Because 6,000 and 11,000, that sounds like only 5,000. That's not that much. Right? That's about 2 billion 
people. About 2 billion people in this world have less than a 2% evangelical presence in their lives. That means that 2 billion people will live and die and never know that there is a God that loves them. They will never know that he has redeemed them for eternity. They will never know that he has a passion for a purpose in their lives. They will live and die and not, not reject. They will never have the opportunity to know that there is a God that loves them like that and that they have a purpose in this life like that. They have a mission for their life to praise a God like that for the rest of their life, for the rest of eternity. There's two billion people that will never know that currently, right now, in the world. Unless we, the Christian church, do something about it. But, again, that's easy. The world, that's easy. That's easy to go, yeah, but that's, a, that's like a lot. Like, two billion, like, how can I do anything about two billion people? So let's bring it a little bit closer to home then. 30%, according to a Pew Research poll in 2014, we know this has not gotten better in the last six years. So this is six years old, but it's a, a national, large Pew Research poll. 30% of the USA is evangelical. 30% of the USA is evangelical, claims to be evangelical. And that, we've talked before about how that 30%, at least half of them don't even go to church very often by their own admission in the research, which means probably half of them, I doubt they're really doing much. But at least a third of the country says that they share Jesus. They know Jesus, and they know they're supposed to share Jesus. That's what it means to be an evangelical. Well, what is 30%? That's 245 million people in this country that are not evangelical, that do not say they know Jesus and therefore they should share Jesus. 245 million people in this country that don't live like that, don't believe like that, don't, 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 won't even say in a survey that they do that. 25% of the country is nuns. We've mentioned this several times in the last four years. Nuns means they don't identify with anything, nothing. Not Protestant, not evangelical, not mainline, not non-denominational, not Catholic, not nothing. Not Mormon, not nothing. Like even all the other ones too, Muslim, all of it. They are nothing. 25% of the country says that. In 2014, I can guarantee you with certainty that that number has gone up. But just going off of those numbers, 25% of the country is nuns. That means there are 87.5, by that math, 87.5 million people in this country that are not affiliated with anything at all, much less evangelical Christianity. So how does that shake out? 25% of the country is nuns. Check this map out. The darker the blue, the higher the percentage of nuns in 2014. Okay, the darker the blue, the higher the percentage of nuns. Now, in the northwest and the northeast of the country, you can see it gets quite a bit darker. In those areas, it can be as high as 37, 38% of the state. The people in those countries say they are none. They are nothing. They have no affiliation. They may be atheists. They may not be, but they have no affiliation with any type of religion at all whatsoever, much less with the God of the universe, with Jesus Christ. What about Arkansas? 18% in 2014. 18% of Arkansas are nuns. 18% of Arkansas, nothing. 540,000 people. This is the math of that. that right here in this state, 540,000 people that 
not only do, do they not know Jesus, they don't know anything. They don't do anything. They don't serve anywhere. They don't know church. Church what? There's people in this town that some of you have talked to that had never heard the word Jesus ever in this town. You say, well, it's those darn kids. <laughs> Y'all know I like this stuff. This is the kids. It's, the, it's that next generation. They're the problem, right? They step on your toes. Mine too, because I'm in this group. According to that research, 2014, that middle group there is Generation X. They're the highest percentage of nuns. Generation X, by this study, in 2014, were people that were 30 to 49 years old. Well, we're six years older now. So 36 to 55. The age group from 36 to 55 are the largest number of nuns of any generation in this country. So, yeah, people still haven't heard and or received the gospel of Jesus. Not even close. Next question. Next question. Is there still physical suffering in the world? Paul took, took an offering to Jerusalem to ease physical suffering. Is there still physical suffering in the world? This is last week's Wall Street Journal. Last week's Wall Street Journal. It's hard to see what's going on, but the last one there, you see how it goes up? It's going down steadily, and then it goes up. That is the poverty spread by the pandemic. Those are years, and that last one is 2020. Already because of the pandemic, is estimated by the World Bank that 88 to 114 million people in the world, so say about 100 million people, have already been pushed into extreme poverty because of what's taking place with the virus, with coronavirus all around the world, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Not an epidemic. That would just be here. Pandemic. Worldwide. Everywhere. This is taking place. After two straight decades, two straight decades of poverty steadily going down all around the world, it has gone up by 100 million. You say, what is extreme poverty? <laughs> Living on less than $1.90 a day. 100 million people have been included into that group just since the start of this pandemic. 100 million more people are now living on less than $1.90 a day around the world. You say, well, it's different there. The dollar buys more there. Okay, well, you go live there and live off two bucks then. I know it's all relative. I know things have more buying power around the world. You're not going to go live somewhere off two bucks. I don't care how much buying power it's got. It ain't got that much. That's a lot. In sub-Saharan Africa alone, before the pandemic, there were 440 million people. That 40% of the sub-Saharan continent were living by this definition, less than $1.90 a day. Since the pandemic, it's risen to 480. 40 million people in just sub-Saharan Africa are now living off less. 40 million more people are living off less than $1.90 a day. So yeah, physical suffering still exists. And that's just talking about income level. That's not to mention or say anything about mental illness, depression, anxiety, sickness, abuse, etc., etc., etc. All the physical suffering that exists right here and all around the world. See, the, the world is disconnected from God. The world is existing in brokenness. The world is disconnected from God and is existing 
and brokenness. And what does this cause? Simple. This causes people to suffer and to feel hopeless. That's what this disconnection from God, sin, has caused in this world. People exist in suffering and they exist in hopelessness. But we, the church, exist. Our mission is to fight suffering anywhere and everywhere to connect people to Jesus with the gospel. That's our mission. You say, how do we do that? <laughs> Going to keep coming back up. Just remember three words. Do these three things. Be sincere. Serve and sacrifice. What do you mean be sincere? I mean build real relationships. Be transparent with people. Care for people. Be honest with people. Share the truth. Share the truth of Jesus with people. Build real relationships. Serve. Get busy. <laughs> Get busy. Serve with prayers. Serve with projects. Serve with participation. Serve with presence, as in gifts. Serve with presence, as in being there. Serve. Go on a stinking mission trip. Stop making excuses for why you can't. You can. You should. If at all physically possible, financially possible, if it's at all humanly possible in your world, you should go on a mission trip and stop acting like it's okay that you haven't. You should. It will change you more than it will change anything in which where you go. Sacrifice. <laughs> Sacrifice. Be generous. Be uncomfortable. Be passionate. Be willing to persevere no matter what. That's what passionate means. Now understand, I, when we talk about the gospel needing to go around the world, I'm not saying that everybody should be pastors and missionaries. That's what we start thinking all of a sudden. Oh, he's saying we all need to be missionaries. No, I'm not. <laughs> not even close to it. If God calls you to that, great. If he doesn't, even greater. Trust me. He's called you to something else probably. And that's okay. You don't have to be a pastor or a missionary to be a super Christian. Matter of fact, it doesn't make you a super Christian. It's just what God has called you to do. I'm not saying that you should be a pastor or a missionary. Businessmen, teachers, etc., can get into countries around the world that missionaries can't get into. Businessmen can go to a country where Christian Christianity is not, not a, a possibility. It's not allowed. It's illegal. But as a Christian businessman or woman, you can get into a country and you can share truth with people. You can ease physical suffering. Some of you already do that. So we don't all have to be missionaries. What if this? This I told you all, don't read David Platt's books unless you want your life wrecked. This is, this is straight from David Platt out of his books, Something's Gotta Change. What if, what if we told our kids to work hard in school, to get a good job, to make good money, not so that they can coast and be comfortable, but rather so they can be ready to take their education, their skills, their training, their degrees, and make the gospel known to individuals in the world that don't know it and wouldn't otherwise know it. What if, the, what if half, I won't even say whole, we won't even take the whole church, what if half the American evangelical church started raising their kids with that mindset? You've got to get a good job. You've got to work hard in school to get a good job, to make good money, 
so that you can sit back and chill, live the American dream. I wonder what Jesus thinks whenever we say that. Whew. I've said it, I've thought it, I've lived it. Still do a lot of the time. It's hard not to. <laughs> it's hard not to live that way. But what if instead of that we say, hey, work your tail end off in school. Get a degree or get a training in some type of certification. Get a good job and work your tail end off in that job so you can make enough money. So you can make good money so you can do something besides just sit back and chill. So that you'll be able to go do something when God calls you. You know the number one reason why kids don't, get, don't become missionaries, according to the IMB? The number one reason, student debt. <laughs> They're not in a financial position where they can. They can't afford to not pay their student loans back and be a missionary. They have to do that. They can't do it. Well, if we raise them to not do that, <laughs> don't do that. Something's got to change. What happens when we do this? When we do the mission of the church? I think this is what happens. I think it leads to real faith. I think it leads to real relationships and real purpose in our lives. Our as in people here, people in the church in America, people in the church everywhere, people that are joined to the church because of those type of actions. Real faith, real relationships, and real purpose in our life. It's what happens when we fight suffering. In other words, we get abundant life now. We get the life that Jesus promised to us now. He said he came to give abundant life now and forevermore. And this is what he's called us to do. He's called us to fight suffering anywhere and everywhere, to connect people to Jesus with the gospel and this will lead to real faith, real relationships, and real purpose. So, challenge. Find your specific duty. Paul knew his specific duty, his personal mission. Find your specific personal duty in this mission of the church. And start to fight. Start to fight. Be relentless. Persevere. By the power of the Holy Spirit, not by your own power. Ask God to help you be relentless and to persevere in this fight, in this duty he's calling you to, to complete the mission that he has put in your specific life that no other Christian can do except for you. That's why he made you to fulfill this specific duty. And never, ever stop fighting for that mission to be complete, your personal duty, until your brief life here on this earth is over. And then when that happens, you instantly... We'll step into eternity with God, and you'll hear what we all desire to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And it'll all make sense then, and it'll all be worth it then. But until then, we're called to fight. Being a Christian ain't for sissies. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll finish in a time of song. And if you would like to know more about the gospel, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I'll be here. Or maybe you just want to be encouraged in the truth uh, of this last song we're going to sing. And the truth of fighting the mission of the church. Fight suffering anywhere and everywhere to connect people to Jesus with the gospel and experience abundant life now. God, we come to you today. We thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. We thank you that 
that you've given us a purpose in our lives, a meaning in our lives, God. In a world full, chalked full of suffering, you've given us a meaning and a purpose in that, God. You have called us to do what you created us to do, to bring praise to your name, personally, ourselves, with our lives, and to take the truth of Jesus to everyone, everywhere, all the time, with our lives, so that your name will continue to be praised by all peoples. God, please, please start that fire and burn that fire deep within each one of us so that we can experience the life that you've called us to experience, so that we can fulfill the mission that you've given us, God, so that we can do our duty. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.